Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. back for the review of another Stargate SG-1 episode. Today we're reviewing episode 6 called The First Commandment. It was written by Robert C. Cooper, first of many, and the episode was directed by Dennis Barry. The original air date was August 22nd, 1997. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM lion roaring. The opening scene of the episode is at night, and we see two men running. Clearly, something is chasing them. The one named Connor reaches the gate, dials the gate, and sends the iris code. While he's sending the code, he notices that his friend is no longer with him, so he goes back for him. Though Connor seems to hesitate, he does appear to leave Frakes behind. So much when we don't leave our people behind. While Frakes is on the ground, we see him getting approached by another SG member, but he doesn't help Frakes. He seems to be the one that Frakes and Connor are running from. A man walks up wearing a robe over his Stargate uniform, and while he walks up, he proclaims, I'm disappointed in you, my son. As he grabs his gun and up close shoots Frakes, presumably dead. You see that Connor hears the shot. The leader sees in the distance that the gate closes and assumes that Connor got through and orders them to burn Frakes' body. Lordy, clearly something has gone wrong on this mission. After the introduction song, we see SG-1 arrive on the planet, accompanied by a large thing, and I had to look this up. It's apparently called a FRED, F-R-E-D, and stands for Field Remote Expeditionary Device. Oh god, I love the military and their acronyms. The FRED is a six- or eight-wheeled remote-controlled carrier for tools, supplies, and weapons. Handy! So the first thing I note in this episode is the headgear. Again, I'm sorry, but this time it's really all over the place. O'Neill is in his infamous standard baseball cap. Carter is now wearing a fisherman's hat. Daniel is wearing a large bandana. And it's now only Tilk that still wears the helmet. I see Carter and Daniel applying sunscreen because apparently this planet has an unusually high UV radiation, so protection is key. They muse on how different the planets are since Avidos, and granted, you know, Avidos was a desert planet, but ever since, the planets that we visited have been suspiciously like British Columbia, Canada. If you know, you know. And here, Tilk casually drops a little fun fact about the Goa'uld, and no one seems to respond to that. Apparently, many centuries ago, the Goa'uld terraformed planets to make them habitable for humans. So, I mean, this was over 20 years ago, people. It already become clear that global warming was a thing, was gonna be a thing. Most certainly, could mean the end of us all thing. The world burning is no longer just a euphemism. We could do with one of them doohickeys. And quite possibly, actually, you know, save us from ourselves, granted. It may not have involved weapons technology, but I'm sorry, this kind of knowledge would actually be quite advantageous for us as well. But hey, just give artificial intelligence a little more time to get its act together and who knows, Terminator might actually become, you know, reality. But I digress. Seemingly, despite the UV radiation, the vegetation appears to thrive quite well. Though, as they move out, Carter does note that they don't hear any birds. Their mission today turns out to be to find SG-9. Daniel is separated and gets grabbed by- Hey! 
It's Connor! I guess he didn't leave after all. Seems that Connor dialed the gate, sent the code, but didn't actually go through. As no one came through, they decided to send SG-1 on a rescue mission slash recovery mission. Okay, again with the headgear. Now all of a sudden, O'Neill is wearing a fisherman's hat as well, and Dilk has lost his helmet it seems. As Connor starts to explain what happened, he remembers Frigs. They recover his dog tags in a pile of ash. Well, damn. I guess the fire over there burns crazy as hot because a regular fire, hell, even a cremation oven, would still leave bones. But okay, it's no doubt more dramatic this way. You just gotta love fiction. For a hot second, Daniel seems to fear that the sun did this to Frakes. Sure, sweetie. But as Connor soon tells them, their leader, Captain Hansen, appears to have lost it. He did this to Frakes. O'Neill doesn't want to believe him. Connor tells them he and Frakes were trying to get word to Stargate Command about the situation when they were caught. Hansen seemingly has embraced the common mistake they face when arriving through the gate on a planet when the people assume that they are gods. Hansen has just failed to correct them, it seems, and has started to even buy into his own propaganda, according to Connor. Wowza, narcissist much. O'Neill beckons Carter for a little sidebar, and he orders her to return to Stargate Command to update Hammond and take Connor with her. Carter, however, declines. Oh, so apparently now we can. It's signed orders. Mm, okay. She claims that she can get through to Hanson. As it turns out, they were engaged. O'Neill is seemingly aware of this, which makes you wonder why it's Carter that he instructs to go home with Connor instead of, for instance, Daniel. He clearly does not want her to be part of this mission. Which, on one hand, is actually a bit odd, seeing that as they were apparently once quite close, she, like no other, could possibly get through to him. However, the fact that he chooses instead to look out for her well-being, I gotta give him props, because he elaborates by saying they're either gonna bring Hanson back for court-martial or not at all, and we all know what that not means. Mm. You know, he just doesn't want her in the way. But I like my earlier suggestion better. After Carter refuses to follow O'Neill's order, also Connor refuses his order and says he doesn't want to go back to Earth. He explains there are thousands of followers who won't hesitate to kill for Hanson because they truly, genuinely believe that he is their god. Now first Carter and now also Connor respond to a direct order from Colonel O'Neill with no sir. He jokingly adds, does it say Colonel anywhere on my uniform? And it's supposed to be a rhetorical question. However, funnily enough, actually, no, apparently it doesn't anywhere on your uniform say that you're a colonel. And this later becomes actually a recurring joke throughout the show. Shockingly, O'Neill quickly concedes with a deep sigh, saying, We're off to see the wizard. Oh goody, a wizard of Oz joke. Actually quite appropriate given the circumstances. As they talk about the intense UV radiation, and O'Neill asks why on earth are they traveling through the daylight, Connor in all seriousness responds with, We're not on earth. And yes, quite accurate. When it's gonna get old really fast. But yeah, it's still early days, and the joke is such a shoe-in, you gots to make it. I get that, I can respect that. Interestingly enough, as Carter points out, even in the pouring rain, they'd still be burning without the proper sunblock. And it wasn't until someone online pointed that out that said if that really was the case, the UV radiation was really that strong, they would have had to wear protected sunglasses at all times, otherwise their eyeballs would get severely burned and, huh, ow, painful. But yeah, and of course it's fiction, so you can put them in ski goggles the entire time, but noted. Next, we see Carter and Daniel at night by campfire eating, and Daniel comments, probably with a little wink to the movie, saying, This tastes like chicken. But he doesn't exactly look happy, unlike the movie, and we soon find out why. Apparently, it's supposed to be mac and cheese. And yeah, that should not even be remotely in the range of possibilities. Someone has seriously messed up if you can fuck up mac and cheese. I mean, if ever there was an easy meal to make, either from scratch or from a little baggie, how can you fuck up mac and cheese, dude? 
They're really ramping up the Wizard of Oz jokes as Carter asks Connor if they need to lie awake and worry about any of the indigenous lions, tigers, or bears. Oh my. Okay, I added the oh my, but for real, you hear it in your head when you watch that scene. Yeah, this is evidently a very Wizard of Oz heavy episode. As Daniel rightfully points out, how could this have happened when SGC personnel are apparently well-trained professionals? And yeah, one would think, considering the missions that they have to go on. And also, with Psyche Vals, you think he would have noticed if someone had a narcissism god complex? Because it's kind of par for the course when they arrive on planets that people think that they're gods. You think they would make sure that their own personnel could handle that kind of perception and not let it go to their heads. As it so happens, Hansen apparently told his team that it might be safer to allow for the natives, cave dwellers, to believe that he was their god. He said it was the system of government that they needed to retake their world. Frakes was apparently the anthropologist of the team and, at the time, agreed with this assessment. Okay, I have notes, but then again, I am a psychologist and not an anthropologist. This all only got amplified after Hansen saved the child that got lost in the sun. Apparently that was a turning point both for the people and Hansen. Connor dismisses the notion that Carter floats, that it could have been just a form of heat stroke. Connor underlying that it isn't just that is a bold statement, but does underline the insidiousness of what happened here, I suppose. And things to really start to escalate when some apparently started to doubt Hansen's claim of being a god. So the anthropologist among them apparently did at some point seem to retract his previous statement as they didn't play into it as much as the others, I take it. Hansen ordered these men to be tied to stakes in the direct sunlight, saying that if they'd survive seven days, they'd be allowed back in. Here, Daniel quickly draws the parallel with the number seven, seven days being a number of significant biblical events, because yeah, this is clearly a god complex centered episode. Of course, eventually the men still died because slow cooking in the sun tends to do that to you. Now, O'Neill first didn't seem to believe or even want to believe what Connor was telling them. You see now that he is visibly shaken and angered by what he hears as he announces that he will take first watch. No doubt after hearing all of this, he's not exactly feeling all that sleepy and he needs some time to think. We see that at night, the people are hard at work building a temple. And this really gives you some biblical, let my people go, ancient Egyptian building the pyramids kind of vibe. Hansen doesn't think the temple is getting built fast enough and orders them to work day and night from now on and proclaims that it is a sacrifice that will lead to their salvation. Oh, Lord Almighty. How often righteous assholes in the name of religion suddenly find it all too acceptable to sacrifice the people that they think of as lesser for their own cause. Ugh, I may vomit. Back at the camp, Connor and O'Neill, during their watch, notice that they are surrounded, and they appear to chase them away by using their guns, but as the cave dwellers flee, they discover that Connor has apparently been taken, and it all was a distraction. Stale and Carter the next day are talking about the taking of Connor being a way for Hansen to show them that he's in control. Carter scathingly says, that sounds familiar, as she says she knew Hansen to be a man who likes control and hello. That is a definite red flag as that behavior, particularly in the patriarchal society that we live in, can very quickly step into abusive. Daniel wonders what she ever saw in him and she answers, I don't know, I guess I've always had a soft spot for the lunatic fringe and the camera work. You gotta love it, they're clearly trying to imply something here. The camera very clearly holds O'Neill in between them as she says this as he's walking behind them, clearly trying to tell us something. They even show an up close of O'Neill responding to that statement. Carter continues to add, saying that Hanson was charming 
coming, and also that apparently she wasn't all that surprised and presumes that it's actually quite fitting that someone might develop a little god complex after too many black ops. And Daniel, bless that man. He says our military seems to select soldiers, and the crazier that they are, the more extreme the situations that they are put into. And while he's saying this, you see him looking back at Jack and oh yeah, because clap back to the movie where the military apparently saw it fitting to send a grieving suicidal father to lead the mission to Abydos. Case in point. These kinds of things are exactly why I love this show. So much happens, so much is said, so much can be written between the lines with so much depth and meaning, and it's just like, what, a 10 second scene? I am committed to this show. Of course, yes, you never lose the sight of that it's fiction, but they touch upon topics that hit so close to home, so close to reality, and they handle it beautifully overall, and they don't make a big ass deal out of it like I am right now, but I love that. that they do say it. They do say that the military makes morally questionable choices when it comes to shit like this. And that there's a very fine line in how that works out. And I love the fact that they are not afraid to call that shit out. Even though they are telling the story mainly from a military perspective. You're noticing that they are becoming more comfortable. Or better writers. I don't know. But yeah, still, they didn't shy away from topics. And that is partially greatly why I love this show. They touched upon certain topics that a lot of other TV shows would either just flat out pretend it didn't exist, the Nile ain't just a river in Egypt, or just tiptoe around it and clearly not making their point. And in this TV show, they can make their point while still maintaining that lightheartedness. I never had an episode where I needed a minute. Well, <clears throat> there is one giant exception and when we get there you will know why that was the one, but well there were two actually. One in the middle and one at the end that I needed a minute to process that. But yeah, TV shows, baby. It truly is an art that can really matter and inspire and give you all the feels. For instance, in contrast, there have been some episodes, particularly on Criminal Minds, that stick with you. And same with Law and Order Special Victims Unit. They both are very good shows. I recommend because it highlights a lot of the dark and twisty psychological profiles of people in our society. And if we would just shine a light on it a little more and know how to recognize it and also how to treat it better, my hope is that we can hold people accountable sooner and thus, hopefully, minimize the damage, at least mitigate it a little better and i mean the fascination with true crime is way there it seems lately although that mainly has to do with sensationalizing serial killers which i approve of a little less but hey if it makes you more aware of what people are capable of and also the science that you should look out for god bless go forth and educate yourself i think we would be a lot better off for it however that is not a tv show that you should binge because then it just gets very depressing for instance er tv show i absolutely commend them for writing making an airing the episodes of Dr. Carter, later Dr. Kovach, visiting the Horn of Africa. This television series, though yes, it is fiction and they're fictional characters, when TV shows draw from real life to give certain horrifying scenarios taking place in real life a platform for us to learn about them, to learn more about them, I can only commend them. But I remember binging that and after several of those episodes in the Sudan, I had to stop for a while because it was greatly negatively impacting my mental health. 
I felt so powerless and overwhelmed by all the feelings that it gave me. However, it has encouraged me to use my voice to make people aware that that is still happening, even though you hardly ever hear anything about it in the news, to donate wherever I can. And unfortunately, I mean, it's now 20 years later. Meanwhile, here we are with the schmuck called Elon Musk. Threw it out there. I dare you to come up with an implementable plan through which my billions could eradicate world hunger. Luckily, I think UNICEF took him up on it and showed him step by step how he could use his billions to eradicate world hunger. That he seemingly ignored them and the motherfucker used his 44 billion to buy Twitter and subsequently murder it. So... That was 44 billion not well spent and knowing what goes on in the world, I would have known where I would have put my money, but okay. We're all still people living on the same planet, breathing the same air. For instance, now the irony with Stargate being on different planets. <laughs> but hey, apparently, according to Tilk, all these people are our long lost ancestors, so if it helps to relate to people to make it more relatable to you. Ta-da! Connection made. Again, we digress. Next, we see that Tilk stops them in their tracks as they have seemingly come upon the temple building site where people are slaving away trying to build that temple that Hanson so desperately wants. We also see multiple men, including Connor, tied to stakes in the direct sunlight. Tilk notes that this way there won't be anyone left to worship Hanson if he keeps working his followers to death. Daniel draws the parallel to the cave dwellers' behavior to Abraham. So I wonder why it was Abraham that he drew a parallel with and not Moses, as in let my people go. But that could just be me and my ignorance. Tilk, of course, not being from earth, knows who Abraham is. So Daniel explains that God tested Abraham's faith by instructing him to make a great sacrifice, his son. And Abraham nearly killed his son until at the very last minute, an angel stepped in and stopped him. Okay, and with this next bit, I know I'm not going to make a lot of friends, possibly quite a few enemies, but let me again reiterate, I invite you to share your thoughts and feelings on this respectfully. That's what this podcast is all about. So this part is all me and the end you part is when y'all turn this monologue into a dialogue. This podcast is a review by me, Leila. It's so it's highly subjective. I'm not saying that my way is the only way, the right way, and I'm hoping that it doesn't need to be said that this is all in my opinion. I'm not stating facts. I'm stating my belief, my thoughts on things, my feelings, my viewpoint. You can either love me or hate me for it. That I lead to your discretion. To this day, that Abraham story does not make any sense to me, or what it was intended to instruct. Let me tell you why. It seems to imply that it is beneficial, desirable, to blindly follow someone who claims to be an authority figure, your god, and kill a beloved to show that you have blind faith in that authority figure. That sounds dangerously abusive behavior to me. Plus, it also invites someone to temporarily park their own moral beliefs. I mean, what about the commandment, thou shall not kill? Apparently, when someone in a position of authority, someone that you look up to, tells you, you, oh no, you can ignore that one because I said it. Hmm. Just, it always made me feel uncomfortable. It always, to me, only highlighted the dangers and also made me fear blind devotion. That's why I would be a very bad soldier. I'm all for the brotherhood, the one for all, all for one mentality, but blindly following is not a skill that I have acquired, for better or worse. I would want to know why, because I want to make my own moral judgments. Anywho, also, they say that God uses Abraham's faith as an example of the type of faith required for salvation. Okay. 
thing. So by following someone's command to do something we all agree is an unforgivable act, murder, grants you salvation? Again, slippery slope, my friends. How about you just don't kill? To me, this only shows that no wonder a lot of people know about the commandment thou shall not kill, but still find a gazillion reasons to justify killing, oftentimes in the name of God. Because when it suited him, or when God wanted to test someone's blind faith in them, you apparently are allowed to park that little commandment for a minute. It just blows my mind. As I was recording this, I looked into it a little more because I never actually read the Bible cover to cover, but I have read a lot of it throughout the years. And specifically this part in Genesis apparently also states that on the way up the mountain to the place of sacrifice, Isaac, the son, inquired after an animal that was going to be sacrificed. And his father answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. To me, that is not a flat out lie, but a lie by omission. Because if it was just, and if it was right, and if God really was righteous, just and pure and we should all follow him. Why the fuck not would Abraham tell his servants and his son that the goal of their trek up the mountain was to sacrifice Isaac because God commanded it. If God was so just and Abraham told him, God told me to sacrifice you, if Isaac would have felt right about that and said, well, if God commands my death, fine. Why lie about it? Again, another point in this story that just breaks my brain. And then the last part of it is that the story of Abraham supposedly teaches us of the atonement and the sacrificial offering. Very simple similar to that of Jesus on the cross dying for the sin of mankind. And to me, again, that also has always made me stop and think, what kind of a sacrifice was that? I mean, we sinned before Jesus, clearly. Shit. <laughs> the crucifying of Jesus was a sin in and of itself with the whole, hello, torture and murder. Plus, we are still full on sinning right now, so apparently we didn't really learn a lesson or, you know, changed anything. So a fat lot of good all that suffering did him or us, it seems. And to this day, some people actually use it as a get out of jail free card because hey jesus died for my sins on the cross and just you know just say a few hail marys and off you pop and i know that strictly speaking you're supposed to be contrite and show remorse and all that jazz but that is just a lot of gray that people will always find a way around just to me it invites so much morally questionable reasonings that just to me it's like what happened to jesus and yes i do believe that there was a man a la jesus i mean hello in the last 100 150 years we had a mahatma gandhi we had a nelson mandela i mean we know that they exist people that are magical and inspiring for us to connect to our humanity, be better, do better. You know, that's what I admire about those people in our history. But other than that, just all I see is murder and nothing justifies that. Like self-defense, yes, but then it is a murder, then it's self-defense. Anywho, the part that kind of shits me is that God talked to Abraham and ordered him to kill his son. However, in the end, it isn't God that stops Abraham, apparently. It's an angel supposedly sent by God, but hey, who knows? Maybe it was a rogue angel, a la Castile, that intervened. And in the end, instead of Isaac, now a ram was provided to be sacrificed. So actually, Abraham didn't follow God's command, but they spin it and say that because his intent was to blindly obey, he was still rewarded and let off the hook. And then I looked into like, okay, what was then the reward for him to be faithful and obey blindly and, and heed his command and was just all set to kill his own son because someone told him to? And apparently the promised reward was, and if I got this wrong, please do enlighten me, that Abraham's seed through his son would spread all over the earth and they would rule the land because yeah that's what our priorities should lie to me that kind of thinking just got atrocities like colonization and slavery going but okay just all in all this just sounds all messed up to me but then again i don't have the best track record when it comes to religion and religious beliefs and all that jazz i am all for it truly when it grants you a sense of belonging when it makes you feel supported loved safe part of a community yes bless absolutely positive energy positive vibes positive thinking i do believe in the power of that.
that power of love. However, I also see that religion very oftentimes is used and abused, and you just you lose me once you're placing yourself above someone else, purging to either give away or, or allow someone to take away your own sound judgment, your humanity. To me, that is a very slippery slope that opens the door to a lot of abuse and manipulation and hardly ever gets used for good. And also, a lot of religions inherently place one or someone above another, and I do not respond well to that. I do not respond well to any kind of ableism or supremacist thinking or acting, so yeah, there's also that. That's basically where you lost me. With Christianity, as soon as I heard that commandment from, I am your one true God and you shall put no other God before me, above me, I don't know what the actual phrasing is, but that was like, to me, that was the point where I went, okay, and I'm done. Like, I'm all for learning all the different perspectives and we have all different experiences and perspectives and viewpoints and I think our differences are our strengths and we can only learn from each other and gain from each other. That is how I view it. But oftentimes our differences are villainized, used to play us out against each other. And yeah, ableism has played a very big part in my life, not in positive ways. So that I'm a little sensitive to that particular construct. I mean, it makes sense. You know, it can be easily explained where that comes from. Oh boy, here I go again with making the episode longer than the actual episode itself. But I mean, hey, it's an episode about religion and religion has caused a lot of conflict and generates a lot of feels and thoughts that have occupied us for many thousands of years. So I think, yes, religion does continue to play a part in this TV show. This one particularly really was very Christianity heavy. As O'Neill has gone off to find an inn, we see one of the SG-9 members beating up one of the workers, making Carter say she can't just sit there and watch. Daniel and Tilk ask her to wait for O'Neill to come back, but there's no stopping her. Plus, she knows what she's doing. Carter walks up to the SG-9 member, punching the dude in the face, saying, Oh, it's refreshing. Gotta love her. O'Neill reports back to Daniel and Tilk just as Carter is getting apprehended. O'Neill concedes that this probably was their only way in without a firefight, and yeah, most likely. Carter is brought before Hanson, and apparently he is called Jonas. He responds saying, And you never thought I'd amount to anything. Oh, someone's ego is clearly bruised when she broke off their engagement by this petulant childlike response as in, I sure showed you. That's just sad, people. And clearly indicative that he himself has self-esteem issues, but okay. Throughout this, I can't help but notice the perfect lipstick game Carter's got going on. Jonas truly seems to believe that he is helping the people after being taken from Earth and forced into slavery. When Carter calls him out for posing as their god, this sets him off, saying it's a matter of definition. He adds, my people need me, believe in me, and because of their belief, they work, building a civilization which is better than rotting in caves. I mean, see, this is my point. It's a slippery slope, because what he just did is shift the slavery, not resolve it, not save them from it. He just now shifted it to serve his own purposes, and still fully seems to believe that that is righteous and behavior befitting a god. Jonas shows Carter drawings in the cave, saying he wishes he understood them, but explains he can't ask the people about it because supposedly he is all-knowing. Oh, again, I may vomit. Through all of this, it sometimes truly baffles me the inherent error in that way of thinking. The belief asking questions is not befitting of a superior being because he is supposed to know everything. All that does is feed into the narrative that you are superior or a superior being when you know a lot. And if you don't know something, that is sign of inferiority. And that kind of thinking is very 
ableist? Uh, no. That just means that you're closed-minded. Because asking a question does not make you stupid. Those two have become so instricably linked that it has fed into that toxic narrative of when you're all-knowing, you don't ask questions. And allow me why that could be seen as toxic. Answer me this. If you are all-knowing, no matter what someone feels or thinks or tells you is then, according to your own logic, gonna be something that you don't already know. So if it's not a surprise, what's the harm in asking? Make someone feel useful. Commend someone on their knowledge and their willingness to share. Those are all good qualities that you most certainly can and should commend people for. I think that's partly the reason why I love the Socratic method so much. The Socratic method is based on asking and answering questions, forcing you to think critically about your answers, about your thoughts, about your convictions, about your core held beliefs, about your assumptions, which is probably why I love it so much. Though it can make you feel seriously uncomfortable, its inevitable conclusion results in you feel more empowered. It reinforces your convictions, and if any tried and tested assumptions, misconceptions are discovered during that process, those are reassessed and adjust it accordingly. So I always just experience it as a win-win. You weed out the unhelpful misconceptions, assumptions, and you've either replaced them with a more healthy, more accurate notion for belief. You strengthen the ones that have apparently been tried and tested and survived the testing stage. And can not only guide you further and help you along your path of building a more happy, healthy life for yourself. For those not interested in the Socratic dialogue method, let me quickly explain a little about what it entails. It's a method that we utilize to assist clients to determine how accurate and helpful certain thoughts may be. It's done by exploring how a client came to have those thoughts and evaluating the evidence regarding those and other related thoughts. The process is undertaken in a spirit of respectful curiosity, so you're the opposite of all-knowing. As a therapist, you guide the conversation by continuously asking questions, not presume anything, and instead profess a certain ignorance of the topic with the client, where the client is seen as the expert and a client is an expert in his or own experiences no one can ever tell you that what you're feeling is wrong you can tell someone that the pain that they're feeling doesn't exist process that is undertaken in a spirit of respectful curiosity the therapist guides you through the exploration using questions and you can get clarification on a certain thought that you have it helps you explore the origin or the source of a certain statement oftentimes we hold certain beliefs that are ingrained in us by our parents by our significant others that just don't really sit well with us but we don't know why and then through this exploration you find out huh that uncomfortable feeling that i keep having is because I am trying to live my life according to someone else's expectations or, you know, something along those lines. It helps you examine the implications and the consequences of a certain statement, for instance, where it can highlight and possibly over-exaggerate a certain fear, and thus it holds you back from doing something that you really want to do but are too afraid to do because you are afraid that when you do it, the sky's gonna fall. And it also can help you explore alternative viewpoints and roads to be taken. Like what would happen if you would quit your job today? And what would happen after that? And then what would happen? And then what would happen? So it really forces you to think things through and to test how accurate those statements, feelings, viewpoints, roads taken make you feel. Because there is no wrong or right. Because if it feels wrong to you, that's all that matters. Your feeling is clearly trying to tell you something. Because what's right for you isn't necessarily right for someone else and vice versa. What's wrong for you isn't wrong for everyone. But you're not everyone. You're just you. So by all means, do you. Fuck the rest. And yes, trust me, I know. I'm a people pleaser. Born bred. So that is easier said than done. But Lord have mercy. Once you finally let that go. Whew. 
so much better. In addition, you subject it to a critical examination to test how accurate that thought is or that held belief is. For instance, what are the odds of your specific plane crashing, seeing how many flights daily depart and land without incident, and if there's something with the plane, how often does it result in a fatal crash, those sorts of things. Does that the chance of that happening to you, does that justify that particular anxiety influencing your life to such an extent that it negatively impacts your day-to-day -day life or relationships like test them what are the odds of that happening and through that you can adjust reassess or hopefully your fear of that happening to you lessens to the point where it doesn't constrict you wait was that in one of these episodes that i said about that no this one on my other channel let's review 2023 i referred to a very not helpful but still very funny supposed therapy video recorded with bob newark as a therapist and it's hilarious it's called stop it i'll add the link to it on my instagram account let's review with layla in you don't worry it's not actually a therapeutic method of utilized one would hope goodness but it's hilarious because basically that is what we're telling patients clients to do just you know stop it but we do it with a lot more respect and in a much more constructive way and but it's still kind of funny because basically that is what you're doing you're telling your client to stop it but you're doing it in a lot more of a constructive way and less punitive that usually doesn't really garner a very positive outcome Lord have mercy, we have deviated quite a bit today. But hey, you can't claim to be an educational podcast when you don't seize an opportunity to educate and share your knowledge. Or in this case, my knowledge as a therapist. Share your knowledge with the world, hopefully creating a better world. Yeah, enough of that. Now let's get back to the episode. When Carter is with Hanson in the cave, she gets the drop on him. He reminds her that killing their savior might irritate the people, but at least he'll be gone. And I mean, she doesn't need to kill him. Or even shoot him. She could just knock him out. She was a level 3 advanced or something, right? I don't know, shoot him in the leg? Show them that he's human, just like the rest of them. Now, what she does by not pulling the trigger is just feeding into his belief of invincibility and vomit-inducing narcissistic tendencies that this man has. As he states, you had the gun. You appear to have all the power. Yet I was in control. That is the strength of a god. I am slightly disappointed in you right now, Captain Samantha Carter. Jonas goes on saying the mere survival of these people will require unquestioning faith and pure devotion, which, well, there's your parallel to Abraham. Cave dwellers dying and building a temple is, according to Hansen, merely separating the wheat from the chaff. And oh yeah, that is reasoning that we also have heard before. Back on the ridge, the boy's plan is to single someone out to approach, and we see the man slinking off that got beat by the SG9 member to go drink at the creek. Meet Jamala. Daniel introduces them, and Jamala even recognizes Tilk as a Jaffa. Daniel tries to ease Jamal's fear of Tilk by asking Tilk to smile, and he just... No. I mean, it's got nothing on Sheldon, but jeez. O'Neill even responds with, you're gonna have to work on that a little bit, and yeah. It's not like you're a robot. Jamala tells them that if they finish the temple, Jonas has promised to make the sky orange. Apparently, that'll make it safe to be out in the daylight. Tilk, surprisingly, seems to recognize what this is referring to. The device Tilk draws, Jamala recognizes, at the same time that we see Hansen show Carter this exact device in one of the caves. Apparently he's already figured out that it's a device left by the Goa Uld, and Carter now realizes that Hansen never wanted to see her, but he wanted her to come to figure out how to turn on the device. He tries to deny it by saying that he wanted her to become his goddess, mm, yeah, sure, keep peddling that, and as she, of course, refuses to turn the device on or even try to figure out how it turns on, he stone-cold threatens that if she refuses, they will just wait and watch every single cave dweller 
die in the sun, after which he will kill them both. And yeah, shared murder-suicide already planned out is usually a bad sign. That whole do what I ask or else. If there ever was a red flag, people, that's a big one. Next you see him pulling out a bible and as he's flipping through it, he says that he'd been carrying it around with him for years, looking for God, after which the camera zooms in as he says, and here I am. Don't that just make your skin crawl? <laughs> and I mean, yes, I believe that God is in all of us, or as Reverend from Rum DMC always said, God is love. I do believe that, but... <laughs> People who claim to be God incarnate or the hand of God or the voice of God or believe that they're closer to God than you, that just, no. Those kind of people just skeeve me out. Because in doing that, they're putting themselves up on a pedestal, raise themselves to a higher level of importance, which often is synonymous to worthiness. Just, again, slippery slope. Like I said, that for me is triggering. Like that we're different and that we can learn from each other. Yes, of course, but in worthiness, we are all the same, in my opinion. I'll add it for this one. Jamala asks Tilk, did you betray your gods as I am betraying mine? Tilk here beautifully explains that he didn't betray his gods because the beings he served, yes, they had power, but they weren't gods because power alone does not make one a god and oh yeah, indeed. I like it that they don't deny the existence of a god, they just define what doesn't qualify as a god. Tilk tells them that they're going to need two devices to turn on the orange force shield. Daniel points out that turning on this device and knowing two are needed could be the thing that they can use to understand undermine Hansen's rule. Next we see Jamala in Stargate command gear and O'Neill goes out to rescue Connor as he is now wearing Jamala's robes and this way he hopes to blend in a little better. While Tilk, Daniel, and Jamala go look for the second device. O'Neill unties Connor and as they make a break for it, they get apprehended by the G9 dude with the turban. Under Hansen's watchful eye, while reading the Bible for inspiration, no doubt, we see that Carter is trying to discover how to turn on the device. Hansen orders her to turn it on or he's going to kill or have O'Neill killed, because sycophants like that never get their own hands dirty, and O'Neill gestures to her that she can turn it on. Next, we see that Hansen has gathered his people to the Stargate, which is now for some reason lying flat, and after some blabbering on about how mighty he is, he says that they're gonna bury the gate after sending O'Neill and Connor back to the hell from whence they came. Meaning that he has dialed Earth, but he has failed to send an iris code, which would then result in their deaths as soon as they step through. As Connor and O'Neill walk the proverbial plank, Daniel runs up and Jamala, using Toke's staff weapon, shoots Hansen's minion, while Carter kicks the 9mm from Hansen's hands as he is about to either shoot Jamala or Daniel with it. As Hansen punches her in the face, which apparently warrants a shot of a disgruntled O'Neill at that display of tiny dick energy, Daniel tells the people that Jonas Hansen is not a god. To try and keep his power, Jonas now tries to turn on the device, but without its companion, it don't do shit. Daniel explains to the people that this is a machine, and he can show them how to operate it. After which, they signal to Tilk to turn on the second device, and lo and behold, the orange force shield goes into effect. As all now seems lost, Jonas grabs Carter and tries to jump both of them into the wormhole, resulting in their deaths, but of course our mighty Colonel O'Neill stops him, which then allows the people to jump on Jonas. Seems they finally got with the program and realized that Jonas had been lying to them. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. They grab Jonas and toss him through the gate. Though Carter looks a little saddened by that, mostly her face just clearly says, that's what you get for dicking around. So wrap up the episode, we see Carter and Daniel only have found their helmets. O'Neill though is still wearing his fisherman 
Manhattan. They discuss whether or not to give the people the advice to bury the gate after they leave. Tilk doesn't believe that the Goulds will be back, so wherein lies the harm? Daniel even sees them coming back. But Carter thinks that they've done enough to the people of this world, and I kinda have to agree. While thumbing through Hanson's Bible, O'Neill asks Carter what's on her mind, as she's clearly still struggling with something, and she confesses that she had the chance to end this, but didn't. O'Neill tells her that killing a man is no badge of honor, and ain't that the truth. He gestures to the Bible in his hands, referencing to the commandment, Thou shall not kill, mistakenly thinking that it's the first one, hence probably the name of the episode. Though I kinda have to agree with O'Neill. I think that should be the first commandment. Love thy neighbor and thou shall not kill. That covers the most important bits, right? Done and done. But he drives his point home by saying every time that you break the commandment, the no killing part, you take a step closer to Hanson and yeah, I think that beautifully interprets that commandment and the choice whether or not to park it when it suits you. The episode then ends with Daniel dialing the gate and the team going home, leaving the people behind with an orange sky. Lordy, that has got to do a number on your eyes after some time, right? But I guess, you know, everything's better than fried eyeballs. Though I would never call myself or be called a Bible thumper in way, shape, or form, I do think that this episode, though it was very Christianity heavy, made its point about certain topics and commandments quite clear. Even though I myself, as I've clearly shown you, do not strictly believe in the whole tellings as they are in the Bible. I think that they did it beautifully and respectfully. So overall, I do quite like this episode. Next up is episode 7 called Lazarus, which gets us very up close and personal with Colonel O'Neill. We do hope to see you there.